Welcome to Waterbrook Church located in Victoria, Minnesota. This week, we welcome Pastor Steve Kim of Grace Fellowship Church in Toronto, Canada as a guest speaker. He preached from 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12 with a sermon titled, The Church of Brotherly and Sisterly Love. Let's worship together. Good morning, Waterbrook Church. I can't tell you how thankful I am to be here. Usually, when a pastor goes on vacation, they're not supposed to preach. Uh, And if this was any other church, I probably would have said no, but um, I do consider it a special joy to be able to share the pulpit with my father-in-law and preach the same gospel from the same word. Uh, It is a unique joy. It is one that truly uh, encourages me and edifies my own soul. And so I'm thankful for this opportunity. You know, with the way things were going in Canada, we actually weren't sure whether or not we would be able to make it. We actually thought the borders were going to close Uh, And so we were prepared in our hearts to be a little bit disappointed, but not surprised. Um, But the Lord was very kind to us uh, to allow my family to to come and to be here and to enter into the chaos of the Dibley home with all the the grandkids. But it's been super fun, especially to see uh, the cousins get along and to see my my in-laws as well. And I also just want you to know that it is an absolute joy for me to be here. You see, the problem with coming to preach here is that this is a singing church, and uh, I want to belt it out with you, but the problem is I tend to lose my voice when I do so, so there's like this internal conflict going on. So I might lose my voice uh, because I couldn't help it, and if that happens, I blame you for that. Uh, friends, I'd like to invite you to take your Bible again and open up to uh, the passage that Chelsea read for us, First Thessalonians chapter 4. <coughs> As I was chatting with Kevin earlier in the week, we were trying to think about what would be a good text for me to preach here? And I've been working my way through First Thessalonians uh, in my own church. And uh, he told me about the new mission and vision statement of Waterbrook Church, which is to be a gospel-centered, multi-ethnic family that is captivated by Jesus, compelled to love, and called to make disciples to the glory of God. And that is a beautiful vision statement. And in light of that, we thought that it would be a timely word for me to preach a message on Christian love, which is a fundamental fundamental component of your vision statement. So by the grace of God, that's what I'm going to endeavor to do this morning. But before we do that, let me pray and ask the Lord again to help us. Father, you do say in your word that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so, Lord, we do pray that you would feed us. Uh, Father, we have come having had our breakfast and filled our stomachs. uh, But, Lord, we need that spiritual food to nourish our souls. So feed us, O Lord, we pray, for your glory's sake. Amen. In the year 1682, an English nobleman by the name of William Penn immigrated to North America from England. And under his authority, he established the city of of Philadelphia, which is now in the state known as Pennsylvania. And uh, there's a, a reason why he decided to call that settlement Philadelphia. And now as a Canadian speaking to a group of Americans, I'm very confident that you know the answer to this question. Uh, what is Philadelphia known for? The, the city of what? The city of brotherly love, right? And, and it's interesting, the, the history behind that name William Penn decided to call that city Philadelphia because it's actually a combination of two Greek words. You have the first word, which is phileo, which means love, and then you have adelphos, which means brother. 
when you put those two together, you get Philadelphias. Now, William Penn founded Philadelphia with a vision that this would be a place, a city where people from all different backgrounds and, and differences could, could come together in true unity and love. Th- this was supposed to be a place where people could live in harmony despite their differences. And I think that is a wonderful, wonderful vision to have. It's a beautiful and commendable vision. But unfortunately, it is not one that endured. Last year alone, there were 499 confirmed homicides in the so-called city of brotherly love. That is more than one killing per day. And that it's, it's also the, the highest number of homicides ever recorded in a year in that city. And then when you take a step back and you see the progress of the homicide rate, it has only gone up and up and up and up. Now, I'm not trying to bash on Philadelphia here. As far as I'm concerned, there is no city that is perfect. But based on the murder rate alone, you have to say that William Penn ultimately failed to establish an enduring city of brotherly love. But here's what I want you to understand this morning. Where William Penn had failed, there was another who succeeded. Long before the immigration of Penn to North America, there was the incarnation of Jesus Christ into the world. And under his authority, he established not a physical city, but a church. And the church is the true eternal city of brotherly and sisterly love where people would come together from every tribe, nation, tongue, and love one another with the love of Christ. And this is what the Apostle Paul wants to talk about here in our text today. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 to 12. It begins with these words, now concerning brotherly love. You know, if I read this passage to you in the original Greek language, even if you didn't know Greek, you would be able to understand what the point of this passage is about. He says, now concerning Philadelphias. So you can see right there that brotherly and sisterly love is the main focus of our passage today. Now, I think it's quite obvious that we are living in a unique season in time. And the question that I have for you, in, 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 in a season where there is so much animosity and hostility, tribalism and division, clamor and disruption, are you, Waterbrook Church, going to be known as a church of brotherly and sisterly love? Because this is, what it, this is what it means to be a church. It was Jesus Christ himself who said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you, what? If you have love for one another. That's how the, the world knows that, that you are followers of Jesus Christ, by your love for one another. Now we're only a couple days away from New Year, and this tends to be a time where people like to make all kinds of New Year resolutions. Um, some, some funny, some great, some serious, but with all that's going on, I'm going to challenge you from the word to include two specific resolutions this new year. The first one is this, and here's point number one, resolve to grow in love for your fellow believers. And I want you to circle that word grow. Resolve to grow in your love for fellow believers. Look again at verse nine. Now concerning brotherly love, You have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. 
Philadelphias or brotherly love most literally describes the kind of faithful, loyal, committed love that blood siblings would share with one another. In, in other words, this is a familial love, one that is different from the love shared amongst friends. And, and it's interesting because out of all the words that Paul could have used to describe love, he chooses to use this word here in order to show his readers that, love, that the love between Christians ought to be the same kind of love shared by blood siblings. As believers, you are to love one another like a family because you are a family. You're a spiritual family. I mean, I've been thinking a lot about the vision statement of Waterbrook Church, and I can tell that it is a very well-crafted statement where every single word serves a purpose. And one of the, the, the big reasons why I love that, that statement isn't because it has a nice ring to it, right? You got the captivated, compelled, and called, but it's because the vision of this church is to be a family. Amen. And that is so fitting for the relationship between Christians. You are a family in Christ. The Christian sitting beside you on your left and on your right is your brother and sister in the faith. Yes, we may come from different physical families, from different backgrounds and different nationalities, but in Christ, we all have the same heavenly father. And Jesus Christ is our elder brother. So concerning this kind of familial, brotherly, and sisterly love, Paul says that there is no need for anyone to write anything to you. Why? Look again, look again at verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. If you learn something like physics from Albert Einstein, then you really have no need for me or anyone else to teach you about physics because you were taught by the greatest teacher in that field. In the same way, the God of love, the God of love has taught the Thessalonians to love one another. So so they don't need anyone, not even an apostle of Jesus Christ to teach them about love because they were taught by the greatest teacher in the field of love. Now, we're not told exactly how the Thessalonians were taught by God. I'm not inclined to think that the heavens opened up and and lightning came down and, and a thunderous voice came from heaven. But I do think that the most plausible answer is that they were taught by God through the gospel itself. And here's why. In 1 John 3, verse 16, the Apostle John writes, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. This is how we know love, because Jesus laid down his life for us. And, and, And that's the gospel, isn't it? Earlier in chapter 1, when Paul is writing to the Thessalonians, he says the gospel came to them in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. They believed in this. The 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 power of the Holy Spirit empowered them to understand and and illuminate their minds so that they would know what true love is in the gospel. In love, Jesus sacrificially gave up his life and died on the cross to pay the debt of our sin. So in the gospel, they learned something of the true meaning of sacrifice. In the gospel, they learn something of the true nature of unconditional love. Which then really begs the question, friends, do you know what true love is? I remember watching a uh, video a couple years ago for doing some kind of research. And uh, the, 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 the person who was making the video asked the question to a bunch of random people, uh, what is love? And it's very interesting to see what the answers were or were, were about. 
You had people saying that love is complicated. That's a common one that we hear all the time. Uh, love doesn't exist. And there was one, that, uh, one person who said that love is when you try to kiss someone and they don't run away from you. <laughs> but that's sad when you think about it, right? As funny as that answer is, that's really sad because that is how the world understands what true love is. They understand love to be a complicated thing, a love to, to be about a kiss where you don't reject someone. Have you experienced the love of God in Christ Jesus? Because that is the only way that you will know what true love is. All you need to do is, is look to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and believe that he died on the cross and rose again and you will know what true love is. I love what St. Augustine, the Bishop of, of Hippo, once said a couple hundred years ago. He said, the cross was the pulpit in which Christ preached his love to the world. I wish this was the best sermon on love, but I gotta tell you, that sermon was preached over 2,000 years ago. Jesus was the preacher, the cross was the pulpit, and his death was the message of love that resounded across the world. And listen, no one is going to preach a better sermon on love than Jesus Christ. Friend, if you turn away from your sins and believe in this good news of divine love, the promise of the Bible is that you will be forgiven. You will be saved and you will know what true love is. That's what happened to the Thessalonians. They, they, they accepted and embraced the gospel in faith and because of it, they knew what love was. And, and this wasn't something that was just theoretical and in their minds. It was evidential and very clearly seen in their lives. We, we see that's where Paul goes in verse 10. He says, for that indeed is what you are doing. You are doing love to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. It's so encouraging to see here that their love overflowed beyond the borders of their own church. Their, their, their love was, was breaking boundaries and going throughout the region of Macedonia, which their city was just a small part of. And, and we see here that their love wasn't just mere emotion or feeling. It's not something they, they thought of or felt or they talked about, but their love was doing something. Their love was an active love. It, it was something that was tangible and observable. And, and even though Paul doesn't tell us exactly how their love was moving, based on other examples in the Bible, we can assume that, um, th that their love was one that was filled with prayer, one that was filled with financial support, and one that was filled with showing hospitality whenever the opportunity arose. Because that's how Christians loved other Christians who were far away. The simple fact is we cannot love people who are far away the exact same way that we can love people who are near. As much as I love you, Waterbrook Church, I can't love you the same way that Pastor Kevin can because I'm gone in Toronto. And there's this big distance and gap and, and it, it, it affects my ability to get to know you, but that does not mean it is impossible to love saints who are far away. It doesn't matter where we are in the world, we could always be praying for Christians in a different place. And that's what we did earlier, at, at least in the first service. Did we do this in the second service? Sorry, I came a little bit late. But you guys prayed for Cambodia. And, and, I, and I like to tune in from time to time and see what's going on at Waterbrook, and I see that you pray for a country every single week. And not only are you praying for all the trials that are going on in that particular country, but you're praying for those saints who are living there. And I just want you to know that is an act 
of loving kindness to pray for saints across the world. Sending financial help is another way to love people from afar. In Philippians 4, we see that the church actually financially supported Paul in his mission for the gospel. In Acts chapter 11, the church in Antioch sent financial relief to the Christians in Judea when they were struck by a great famine. Now I know this church, Waterbrook, supports two missionaries. You have the De La Vegas who are serving in Honduras, and you also have a sister who is serving in Italy, and your financial and prayerful support for them is an act of loving kindness. Hospitality, where you welcome visitors and give them a place to rest, eat, and fellowship and feel welcome, is another way to love people who are traveling from afar. And this one, I can speak from my own personal experience and say that you have been such a loving church to my family. Every single time that we come here, we feel so genuinely loved, sincerely cared for, and welcomed. And I just want you to know that is an act of loving kindness for someone who's coming from far away. And all of that, the the praying, the giving, the showing hospitality, brings me to say how thankful I am to God for you because of the love that you have for one another and because of the love that stretches beyond the walls of this church. Waterbrook, you know what love is because you have been taught by God and the evidence of love is so clearly seen in your life. And so when it comes to this sermon of love, instead of trying to teach you more about the fundamentals, fundamentals and basics of love, here's a simple exhortation that I want to give you. Keep growing in your love for one another. Whatever it is that you're doing in showing love to one another, keep doing that. Strive for excellence. Keep increasing and abounding in Philadelphia's. The second part of verse 10, Paul writes, but we urge you, brothers, do this more and more. And and the Apostle Paul loves to use that little phrase here in this letter, more and more. You're you're, you're doing this. You're, You're loving one another. You're loving Christians outside of this church. Do this more and more. Now, there is an important implication that is bound up in these words. It implies that none of us is perfect in our love doesn't matter where you are in your Christian life, doesn't matter how loving you are, you could be the most loving person in the entire world, but there is still room to grow in both the quantity and in the quality of your love. And, and how that exactly looks will be different from person to person based on your giftings and your resources and your talents and abilities, but whatever love looks like for you, don't ever become content with the level of love that you have. Keep growing in your love. We are to love one another more and more. We are to strive for excellence in our love for one another. And let me just say this one last thing about growing in your love. As you seek to be excellent in your love, as you seek to grow more and more in your love, do not neglect to pray for greater love. Earlier in chapter 3, you can look over there, First uh, Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul, Paul said something very similar to what he's saying here. He prayed in First Thessalonians 3 verse 12, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. So you have here in chapter 3, Paul prays that the Lord would help Christians to grow in love, and then you have chapter 4 where Paul actively calls on Christians to grow in love. So when you put those two verses together, you can see that prayer and action go hand in hand in a Christian's life. You cannot separate the two. 
you can't just passively uh, pray and, and, and just wait for the Lord to increase your love for one another, nor can you just go ahead and, and try to love one another in your own strength without prayerful dependence on God. You need both. See, one of the things that I try to do on my commute home every day is pray specifically that the Lord would help me to love my family well. And I found that whenever I don't pray for that, I don't love my wife with the sacrificial love of Christ. I tend to provoke my children to anger. But those days where I pray, Lord, please help me to love my family. Please help me to love my wife and to love my kids. I mean this literally. He has every single time answered that prayer. And why wouldn't he? He's the father who loves to, to answer prayers that are, that are lifted up in accordance to his truth. And he desires for us to grow in our love. So brothers and sisters, pray this for yourself and pray this for one another so that we would all increase and abound in love. And then go. In, in, in full dependence on the grace of God and love one another the best way that you know how. Now, when we think about love, we usually tend to think about it in terms of how we directly relate to others. What I mean is we're usually asking, how does love work from me to you? Well, what is it that I can say to you to, to show you that I love you? What is it that I can do for you to show you that I love you? But we need to understand that that's not the only way we show our love for others. That is a very direct way, but there is also an indirect way. It is also important to consider the question, what can I do for me in order to show you that I love you? What can I do for me in order to show you that I love you? And I know that sounds a little bit weird and self-centered, but I think this is where Paul goes next. And here's how I want to show you. Here's, the, the first resolution was resolve to grow in love for your fellow believers. Here is the second big resolution. Resolve to live an honorable life as an act of love for others. Resolve to live an honorable life as an act of love for others. Friends, you need to rightly care for yourself and guard how you live in this world, not as an act of pride and selfishness, but as a way of loving others. See, one of the things that we need to recognize is that we are living in a very noisy, noisy day and age. There is a lot of disruptive clamor in the world today with a ton of loud and angry voices and opinions that stir up more strife and, and conflict than anything else. And, and in such a time as this, the word of God is calling you and I to live a peaceful and honorable life. We are to pursue a quiet and dignified existence in this world for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of Christian love. Now these next two verses, verses 11 and 12, are divided into two main parts. The first part, he's gonna talk about how we are to live. And he's gonna give us three exhortations. That's verse 11. And then in verse 12, he's gonna give us two reasons why we are to live this way. And that's how I wanna approach the second part of this text. I wanna give you the three exhortations and then the two reasons. So here is the very first exhortation of how you are to live your life. Number one, be ambitious about living peacefully. Be ambitious about living peacefully. What Paul calls on the church, when, when, when Paul calls on the church to aspire to something, he, he's essentially urging the Christians to live with some kind of holy ambition. 
That's what the word to aspire means. It means to be ambitious, to be zealous. And what is it that we're to be ambitious and zealous about? We are to be ambitious and zealous about living a quiet life. Now, he doesn't mean this literally. It's not like you've got to crank down the volume of your voice and, and whisper all the time. Brother Mike, don't ever stop encouraging and evangelizing. Be loud in those things. But rather, what Paul is speaking about here is a kind of lifestyle that refrains from disruptive activities and prioritizes peace. That's what it means to live quietly. It means to live with peace. Peace is the goal. Peace is the aim. Peace is what what we're striving for. Be ambitious about peace. Be zealous about peace. You see, one of the big problems today is that far too many Christians get this all backwards. You you have Christians that are ambitious and zealous people, which is a good thing, but they're more ambitious about a clamorous life that leads to greater conflict. These are the ones that love to quarrel. These are the ones that love to engage in fiery debates. These are the ones that love to give full vent to their anger and frustration, but this kind of noisy life does not align with the truth of this passage. Listen, as Christians, we need to be the guardians of peace, not the disturbers of peace. See, I love that Jesus has given so many different names in the Bible. And you have one that's actually up on your walls here, right? You have a couple. It's from Isaiah, and it says, Jesus, the prophesied Messiah, will be Emmanuel. He would be the light of the world, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father. And then I want you to pay attention to this last one. He is to be the prince of peace. Not the prince of conflict, not the prince of division, but the prince of peace. How can we say that we are followers of the prince of peace, that we belong to the kingdom of the prince of peace if we are not for peace? So let's get real practical here and consider the question, what does it look like to be a guardian of peace when a brother or sister sins against you? Galatians chapter 6 verse 1, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are more spiritual should restore him in a spirit of what? Gentleness. Not grumpiness, gentleness. What does it look like to be a guardian of peace when you differ with another Christian on matters of conscience and preference? Romans chapter 15 verse 7, Paul writes, welcome one another. And this doesn't mean you just say hi at church. This is a real embrace of the heart. This is where you love them and accept them for who they are, regardless of your differences when when it comes to preference and conscience. You are to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. What does it mean to be a guardian of peace when we're living in such a tumultuous time with so much chaos and confusion around our government and government mandates? 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, Paul writes, pray. Pray for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead, listen to this, a peaceful and quiet life. He doesn't say throw a fit about the government. He says to pray. Friends, when was the last time you prayed for your government? That's what we're called to do. We're to pray for the government so that they would lead in such a way where we can live a peaceful and quiet life. 
See, if you're going to be ambitious about anything in this world, be ambitious for peace. Because aspiring to this kind of quiet living in our own lives is an act of love towards others. Being clamorous and producing conflict, you know this often ends up hurting others. But that gentleness that leads to peace, that produces peace, often ends up encouraging and building others up. So be guardians of peace. Be ambitious about peace. Be zealous about peace. Now another way to strive for peace is by doing what he says next in our text, verse 11 again, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs. Now the contemporary way of saying that is just mind your own business. Mind your own business. That's the second exhortation. And, and, and it means exactly what it sounds like. We need to pay more attention to the things that actually have to do with us. We need to pay attention to our own business. And so the opposite side of that, the flip side of that, is that we need to stop meddling in the affairs of others. It's important to clarify that there is a big difference between caring for others and meddling in other people, people's affairs. And what Paul is seeking to address here is the very second thing. Caring is a selfless act. It it, it is one that is um, governed by a genuine desire to help others and meet their needs. But meddling is a selfish act. It is one where you decide on your own to intrude and interfere into other people's lives without their consent and without their consideration. It's like you're this uninvited guest and you show up to the party anyways with a crowbar and you pry the door open and you come in even though you are unwelcome. And the Bible warns us against this kind of meddling in the affairs of others. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 15, Peter writes, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Meddlers go outside their personal boundaries and, and they love to get fixated on, on what's going on in other people's lives. And it often leads to gossip. It often leads to offense. It often leads to disruption. That is the opposite of love. And then nobody likes people interfering where they're not welcome to or where, where, where they have no real knowledge of the whole issue. And I think that right there gives us a helpful understanding of what Paul means when he says, mind your own affairs. Generally speaking, the things that are within the realm of our own affairs are the things that are close to us, not far from us. They're the things that we actually have credible knowledge of, not things that we know nothing about. They're the things that directly involve us, not things that are disconnected from us. They're the things that we are invited to be a part of, not as unwelcome guests. So personally for me, My family, my church, my job, and my home are the things that are primarily my own business. These are the things that I should be most mindful of. These are the things that I need to give my best attention to. These are the things that I actually have influence over. Well, brothers and sisters, beware of meddling in the affairs of others, especially in this social media age. I don't know about you, but I have found though. Those comments that we throw out online often have very little effect for good. And, and, and we need to be so careful in, in this age, day and age where, where people love to throw out their, their personal and public lives all out in public. 
And it's so easily, easy to start meddling in the affairs of others. So beware of meddling in the affairs of others. Rather, mind your own business. And here is the third exhortation. Focus on the work that is in front of you. Verse 11, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. Now, if you're a homemaker or you work in an office or you work in a job that requires more mental work than manual labor, this doesn't mean that you should just quit your job tomorrow and then go find a construction job the next day. That's not what Paul is talking about here. The, the, The point is to live a focused and diligent life with the tasks that are in front of you. And you can do that as someone who works inside the home. You can do that as someone who works outside the home. And you can do that as a student who is in school. What Paul is addressing here is the issue of laziness. He's saying, don't be an idle person. Don't be a lazy person. Work hard to care for yourself. This is how the Thessalonians were instructed to live by the Apostle Paul and his fellow missionaries. Not only were they taught this, but they had it modeled for them in the Apostle. In 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 9, Paul writes, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim the gospel to you, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So even in their own lives, they were setting an example of of not being lazy and idle. They didn't take advantage of the Thessalonians by freeloading off of their generosity. Rather, they put their hands to the plow and they got to work and now they are calling on other Christians to do the same. See, friends, this is the kind of honorable life that we should all strive to live. We ought to be ambitious about living peacefully while minding our own business by focusing on the work that is in front of us. And here are two reasons why we are to live this kind of lifestyle. Again, in verse 11, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, verse 12, so that, That's a a purpose statement there. So that you may walk properly before outsiders. What Paul is saying here is that the optics from the outside world matter. The Bible addresses this in a number of different times and in a number of different ways. We need to be concerned about what our lives look like to those who are outside of the faith. And Paul actually told us why that matters in the text that I just read earlier for us in chapter 2, verse 9. He says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. It was for the sake of Christian mission. You, You can see here that there is this evangelistic bent to living a quiet and dignified life. How we live and labor in this world matters for the sake of the gospel. I mean, just think about it. What are people going to think about Christianity if they hear you preach the gospel and you're living an idle, lazy, busybody, noisy, and meddling life? That's not the kind of life that makes the gospel attractive. You see, we proclaim the gospel with our lips, but we adorn the gospel with our lives. And living a life of peace and dignity, working hard and walking with integrity is the kind of honorable life that people are drawn to respect. 
It's the kind of life that makes the gospel beautiful. It's the kind of life that elevates and exalts Christ on high. And when people respect you, realistically, they are more likely to give you an open ear to the good news of the gospel. So that's the first reason why you should strive to live this kind of honorable life. It's for the sake of the gospel. It's for the sake of winning souls to Christ. Here's the second reason. It's to not unnecessarily burden others. Key word there being unnecessarily. Verse 12, so that you may walk properly before outsiders. That's the first reason. And here's the second reason. Be dependent on no one. The goal is independence. The goal here is to get to a place where you don't need to borrow or solicit help from others, which is in itself a form of love. John Stott helpfully wrote once in a commentary, true, it is an expression of love to support others who are in need, but it is also an expression of love to support ourselves so as to not need to be supported by others. If you're idle and lazy, and you're just unwilling to work simply because you don't want to, and you take advantage of the generosity and kindness of others, then that creates an unloving and unnecessary burden on people who care for you. Now, as I say those things, I want to be extremely careful here because this doesn't mean that you shouldn't receive any kinds of meals or gifts or financial help from people who want to serve you and help you. That would be contradicting what I said. I mean, in in, in Philippians 4, we saw that the church in Philippi gave money and financial support to the Apostle Paul for the sake of missions. So there will be times and seasons where you will need to depend on the help of others, and that's why Jesus brings us into a community of believers. That might be when a newborn is born in the home, or you get laid off from work, or when you're going through an extremely challenging and difficult trial in your life. And in those circumstances, when help is given, you should humbly and gratefully receive it. Because when you don't, you are actually stifling people's godly efforts to love you, which is what they are called to do from the Bible. This is an act of worship on their part, and you shouldn't try to put a stop to that. Rather, you should humbly receive it and be filled with gratitude. That ought to be the posture of our heart. But insofar as it is possible. You should always be striving to work hard for independence so that you wouldn't unnecessarily be a burden on others. Rather work hard and strive to be a blessing unto others by being able to give to those who find themselves in need. Now hopefully you can see that loving others doesn't just happen when you're directly caring for others, but as you learn to care for yourself, as you learn to strive for an honorable life and an honorable existence, that in itself is an act of love for both the believer and the unbeliever. In this noisy and clamorous world, how we live our lives matters for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of Christian love. So here is my main exhortation for you. Here is the the main challenge that I want to give you. Waterbrook Church, show the world, that the true city of brotherly love is not found in the state of Pennsylvania, but it is found here in the community of believers who come together, who are captivated by the beauty of Christ, compelled to love others, and called to make disciples to the glory of God. Let's pray.
Father, this is a wonderful and beautiful aspiration. It is a beautiful vision to strive for. But we recognize, I'm sure all my brothers and sisters here recognize that this cannot be done without your help. So Lord, come and help Waterbrook Church to be an outpost of the heavenly city of brotherly and sisterly love that will endure forever. May this church be a city that is set on a hill and may their love for one another bring you great glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.